If you don't have a Bible, we have some on the uh, back shelf there. Father, as we open Your Word once again, God, I pray that uh, You would speak to our hearts. And Lord, we, we ask for Your blessing on all these events that are coming up, all these these new ministries, Lord, that... Uh, that we're beginning with mops and and uh, home groups and the young adult service, Lord, and the local hero tour and the conference down in Mexico, Lord. All these things we just put in Your hands. And God, we ask for Your blessing, Your provision. God, we ask that You would be glorified. That, Lord, You would just pour out Your Spirit on this church and upon these things, Lord, in just a powerful way. God, we pray that You would just revive our hearts, Lord. And God, this morning, we pray that You'd open Your Word to us. God, bring an excitement into our life about You, Lord. Lord, sometimes there's not a lot to be excited about in this life. But Lord, we can't always be excited about You. We can be thrilled about You, Lord. We, we can be so encouraged because, Lord, You never change. You're always the same. No matter what our circumstances are, Lord, no matter what's going on in our lives, God, You are always the same. And Lord, Your love never changes. Your grace is always there to pick us up, Lord, to to bring us back. And God, just uh, encourage our hearts this morning in Your Word. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, Second Corinthians chapter 2, we looked at the first couple verses of chapter 2 last week. As we saw and have been seeing, Paul giving a defense for his ministry. Paul was being challenged by some false teachers there in Corinth. And one of the things that we've been seeing that the critics had been saying about Paul and, and one of their major criticisms was that Paul was fickle, that he said he was going to come and then he didn't come and you know, if he was really a man of God, he would stick to his word. And he wouldn't change. And he wouldn't, you know, at all do things uh, differently than what he said he was going to do. You know, and he should have the, the nature of God who never changes. And these were high expectations for Paul. And this is what he was living under. And, and maybe, you know, you can relate to that. Just people having these really high expectations for you and, and people putting this pressure upon you and you can never do right and you can never achieve, um, you know, success in anyone's eyes. And, and that's what Paul was up against. And Paul sat down and he wrote this letter to them, giving them a defense of his ministry. And, and here really Paul is explaining to them the reason that he chose not to come to them. You, you, because you remember this non-visit was a real source of contention. Look what Paul says. Uh, in verse 3, and I wrote this very thing to you, lest when I came I should have sorrow over those from whom I ought to have joy, having confidence in you all that my joy is the joy of you all. And so Paul really is telling them that they, they should really be happy about the fact that he didn't come to them that time that they wanted him to. Because he would not have come in the right attitude. He wouldn't have come in the right spirit. He was angry with them. He was irritated with them. He was frustrated with them. 
And, and so he, in his wisdom, didn't come to them. And so he's telling them, you know, you really ought to be glad I didn't come. And the first thing we're going to see here in, the, in these verses, uh, verses 3 through 11, really, is we're going to see Paul teaching us on restoration. And then in the rest of our text this morning, 12 through 17, we're going to see Paul experiencing revelation. So Paul teaches us about restoration. Then Paul tells us about his experience in revelation. Not the book Revelation, but revelation that he had to take him out of the circumstances that he was going through and to really um, put him on a different plane, a different level, giving him a different experience. Um, perspective. And so the first thing Paul's teaching on restoration. Let's pick it up there in verse 4 and read down through verse 11. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote to you with many tears, not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have so abundantly for you. But if anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me, but all of you to some extent. Not to be too severe, this punishment which was inflicted by the majority is sufficient for such a man. So that, on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. For to this end I also wrote that I might put you to the test, whether you are obedient in all things. Now, whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ. Lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. And so, this is a very personal letter. And in fact, you know, if, if this is your first time hearing these things, and even for me as I was reading it over the week, you know, it's kind of hard to to really figure out what exactly Paul is, is communicating uh, to the church because, you know, Paul doesn't necessarily write just with one flowing thought. He, he kind of, you know, and, and we're really going to see in this next section, he just kind of goes from one thing to the next. And here Paul is beginning to tell them that they ought to bring restoration to this man that was in the church there in Corinth. This this section of the letter really is about restoration, teaching them about restoration. And we learn a few things about it here. Now, there are some scholars that believe that this man that Paul refers to, and notice that Paul doesn't name him. He doesn't say, hey, you know, uh, Jack that was uh, really screwing up over there, you know, go ahead and bring him back. I mean, he doesn't, you know, throw the guy under the bus. He, he, he With sensitivity... He just says, you know that guy that we were having some problems with? Go ahead, it's time. He's repented. Go ahead and bring restoration. That way, those that don't know who he was, they don't need to know. And those that did know the situation, well, they already know anyway. So you don't really need to name names. And, and we learn that about Paul and how he handled this. But Paul is um, is, is teaching them about a, a, an individual in the church. Now, some people believe that it's, Referring back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. For those of you that are familiar, you know that there was a man in the church at Corinth, and Paul addresses this guy back in 1 Corinthians 5. He says there's a guy in the church that is sleeping with his father's wife. 
it's a, you know, a, kind of a bizarre section there in, in 1 Corinthians that there was a guy in the church that probably was sleeping with his stepmother or with, you know, his father's wife. It could have been his mom, but more than likely it was his stepmom. An incestuous relationship going on in the church and nobody was doing anything about it. it the leaders of the church were just pretending like it wasn't happening. The people in the church were just, you know, sweeping it under the rug and nobody was willing to deal with it. And Paul said, hey, you need to deal with that situation. You guys need to take that guy and you need to discipline him. He needs to be uh, set outside the church until he repents. Now, some scholars believe that this is the situation Paul's talking about, that that guy had now repented. Now, go ahead and bring him back. It seems unlikely that that's the situation more than likely, in, in context of what Paul is talking about here, this is probably one of the leaders in the church that had been criticizing Paul, that had been trashing Paul, that had been slandering Paul. And in his severe letter, remember that, that letter that would actually be Second Corinthians, and this would probably be more like Third Corinthians and some people call it the severe letter that Paul wrote in between 1st and 2nd Corinthians. In that letter, Paul addressed this situation. And they had now dealt with it. And Paul is telling them, look, the guy's repented. Let's go ahead and restore him. And so in these verses, Paul urges the church to forgive and restore the person whom they had previously disciplined. And that is the objective of any church discipline is to bring restoration. Now, unfortunately, we live in a society, we live in a, in a day and age where church discipline really doesn't exist for a couple different reasons. One reason is, is that church leaders are just too afraid to do it. They just don't want to do it because, um, you know, they don't want to lose that individual. They don't want to lose that money that that, that individual might be giving to the church. They're just simply afraid to hand down any sort of discipline. Now, when I talk about church discipline, I'm not talking about, you know, locking somebody up in the dungeon, you know, or throwing them down in the church basement for a month or something. When we talk about church discipline, what it is is that it would be, for example, let's say there was somebody in the church that was committing adultery, that was, you know, cheating on their wife or that was doing something that they, you know, they obviously know that they shouldn't be doing. And, or maybe it's fornication or, or maybe, you know, maybe they're, it's a person doing drugs. And, and everybody in the church knows what's going on. Church discipline is where the leaders in the church step in and they say, look, this is, we know what's happening. You know what's happening. You know what's wrong. Are you willing to repent? Are you, are you ready to repent and to turn from this situation? And if they are to say, no, no, I don't want to repent. I, I think that what I'm doing is okay. I don't think there's a problem with it. Then at that point, the leadership of the church would say, well, in light of that, because you're not willing to repent, then you are not welcome to continue coming to church in that sin in that gross immorality that everybody knows is going on. Because you, you need to deal with that. You need to get that out of your life because we don't want the rest of the body to think that that's okay, that, that we're not dealing with it. That, you know, and, and that gives the enemy a foothold. 
And so that is the kind of church discipline that I'm talking about. And that's what was handed down here at the church in Corinth. But like I said, unfortunately in our society, that doesn't happen a whole lot because number one, the leaders are afraid. Number two, if the people do leave, they just go down to the church down the street. And that church gladly brings them in because they just can't wait to have new members and they don't really care what the person's doing or they may not even know what the person's doing. And of course, the communication isn't there and, and so that person just you know joins this other church and they continue doing what they've always been doing and nobody seems to care. And that is sort of the the church age that we're living in and it really is sad. And it, and it really is something that um, is contrary to to the way that, that Paul and the rest of the New Testament writers said that we should handle things. But here Paul is telling them, okay, this guy has repented. You set him outside the church, and, and now he's repented, and now it's time to bring him back. And so we learn a couple things about how they ought to have brought him back. Paul says that, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him, verse 8. For to this end I also wrote that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. And so Paul says the first thing that needs to happen if you're going to bring restoration into a person's life is that there is faithful confrontation. Paul says, I'm asking you now to reaffirm your love to him and it's because the first time I wrote to you, I really put you to the test to see whether you would be obedient in confronting this guy. And so that's really the first thing is that we need to, we have to be willing out of love to confront a person who's living in sin. We have to. If, if we want them to repent, if we want them to be restored, then we have to confront them. We have to be willing to do that. And... You know, a lot of us um, have a really hard time doing that. You know, we don't want to confront people. We don't want to be the bad guy. We don't want to have people not like us anymore. But it, it's imperative. And, and even in our parenting, you know, maybe this applies to you more than it does in, in the sense of church discipline. But in a sense of parenting, we have to confront our kids and challenge our kids and discipline our kids. And if we're not willing to do that, we're really going to have children that have no sense of right and wrong, who have no authority in their life. And, and then they grow up to, to continue to do the things that they did when they were 8 and 9 and 10 years old because they never grew out of that. And so true love, you guys, true love for, for our kids, true love for people in the church is not to just sweep it under the rug. That's not love. That's, it's called cowardice. It's called being afraid. It's called not wanting to be the bad guy. And that's not love. True love is willing to be the bad guy. Look, you guys, as parents, our job is not to be our children's friend. That might be a revelation to some of us. But that's not our calling as parents. You'll, you'll probably you know, have a, a friend in your kids when they when they turn 30. You know, but maybe when they're 8, 9, and 10, 16, maybe they're not going to be your friend. Maybe they hate you. But your job isn't to, to win their friendship. Your job is to mold them and shape them to be 
a, a man or a woman who loves Jesus, a man or a woman who can have a positive contribution on this society. And so the first thing that we have to be willing to do out of love for people is to confront them. It is to confront them, to tell them that, look, this isn't cool, this isn't right, what you're doing needs to stop, and to discipline them. But then Paul goes on and he says, once that repentance has happened, then you now need to extend and be ready to forgive. Look what he says in verse 10. Now, whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ. And so now Paul says, look, extend forgiveness. Now, here's where we struggle. We've now, you know, gotten up the courage to confront this person. We've we've now, you know, gotten up the the ability to, to go to that individual, to go to our kids, to go to that person in the church, and we told them that they need to repent, and then maybe we set them outside the church, or, you know, we let the Lord deal with them, and now they've repented, but now where we struggle is to forgive that person that's offended us, that's hurt us, that's done wrong to us, or done wrong to the church. And, and that's, you know, sort of another struggle for us. We've, we've built up all this, you know, ability to, to confront them, and now when it's time to forgive them, we, we don't want to do it. You guys, any time that we discipline somebody, the motivation for it ought to be love. And if it isn't love, then we really shouldn't be the one doing it. We should never discipline our children and, and enjoy it. You know, we should never uh, discipline our children just because you know, we're angry at them or we're, we're upset with them. Um, it ought to be with the motivation uh, of love. As Paul said there in verse 4, as he's talking about why he wrote the letter to them, he says, Out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote to you with many tears, not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have so abundantly for you. So Paul says, the reason why I disciplined you, the reason why I wrote that that harsh letter, that severe letter to you, was not that you would be grieved. It wasn't because I took great joy in it. No, it came with anguish. It came with many tears. My heart was broken. I did that so that you might know the love that I have so abundantly for you. In other words, it was love that motivated him to discipline. And that ought to be the motivation for any discipline that we're handing out, whether it be church discipline, the motivation should be that they would be restored. Not so that, you know, they would learn a lesson. Not so that, you know, that they can just be kicked out to never come back again. No, that they might be restored. And with our kids, the discipline that we're handing down to them we really shouldn't be enjoying that. It should be like Paul says, with anguish of heart, with many tears. And, you know, most of us heard our parents say to us when we were kids, you know, this hurts me more than it hurts you. And I think as kids, we just thought, you know, that was something that parents were taught, you know, at parenting class before they had kids, you know, that, okay, this is what you say to your kids, you know, when you're about to spank them with the belt, just go ahead and say, you know, that it hurts you 
more than it hurts them, and, and we all know that it doesn't, but it's, it's a nice line. And that's kind of what we think. But it, as we have kids and as we parent, we begin to see, wow, it is true. It is, it is harder for me to discipline than, than it is to receive the discipline. Or at least it should be. It, it really should be. We, we shouldn't be enjoying it. And, and, and also, we shouldn't be doing it out of anger, as we've talked about before. You know, we shouldn't be disciplining our kids out of anger. We should be disciplining our kids out of love. And so if you are angry, you need to wait some time before you discipline. You need to, you need to allow your anger to subside, and, and you need to have the mind of Christ. And the same is true with church discipline, is that it shouldn't be out of anger. When we sit a person down and we confront a person about their sin, what, what is our body language expressing to them? Is it expressing love or is it expressing, you know, anger and, and hate and, and just, you know, the fact that we can't stand that person? A lot of the restoration process is going to be determined on how we handle the confrontation process. And so, Paul says, extend forgiveness. Don't hold on to that bitterness. Don't hold on to that anger. Don't hold on to, to unforgiveness. Because if you do, look what he says in verse 11. Lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. And so Paul says, you know, if you aren't willing to forgive, if you aren't willing to extend forgiveness and let go of that bitterness, you are giving the enemy a foothold, an advantage in your life. You are allowing the enemy to now take control of your life. It was the person that you were confronting. But now the enemy has won a double victory because now he is having an advantage in your own life. And Paul says, don't allow that because we're not ignorant of his devices. We're not ignorant of what he can do. If this goes on, if this is allowed to continue, you need to forgive. You need to let it go. And so Paul teaches us a few things about restoration in these verses. It involves confrontation. It involves forgiveness. And it involves, thirdly, as we saw in verse 11, a spiritual awareness. Because there is a spiritual element to this. To this process of restoration. The enemy is involved in that. And if we don't recognize his tactics, if we don't recognize the fact that he's involved in this, and we don't combat him by forgiving, by letting go of that bitterness, then he will have an advantage in our life. And so Paul tells us a few things about restoration there. And then Paul goes on in verses 12 through 17 to talk about his experience in Revelation. He teaches us about restoration. Now he tells us about his revelation. He says, furthermore, verse 12, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel and a door was opened to me by the Lord, I had no rest in my spirit because I did not find Titus my brother, but taking leave of them, I departed for Macedonia. And so Paul is telling us a little bit about his experience on his way to Corinth and really why he didn't come to them. He says, 
I, I, I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, which he did, because later we'll see that Paul planted a church in Troas. Uh, in Acts chapter 20, we, we learn about that. But he was there and an op- uh, a door was open to him. But Paul really had gone to Troas to meet Titus. But when he got to Troas, Titus wasn't there. And you remember, there weren't cell phones then. There wasn't the internet. And he couldn't email Titus, say, hey, I'm in Troas, where are you at, man? I've been here for a day and a half, you know. Or call him on the cell phone. He couldn't do anything. He's just waiting there. And, you know, he's, of course, a long way from home. It wasn't like he could, you know, get back on the next Greyhound home. And so he had met, or he wanted to meet Titus there because he wanted to hear a report about what was going on in Corinth. Remember, he sent Titus to go to Corinth because the church was messed up. And they were trashing Paul, and they were, you know, letting these false teachers come in, and Paul's name had been drugged through the mud, and he was so torn up about it, he sent Titus there. And so now Paul has been waiting for news. Have you ever been waiting for news? Remember back in the day before email when you actually had to wait for a letter to come in the mail? You know, and you couldn't wait. You know, maybe it was, um, you know, when you went to college and, you know, or maybe you were in the military or, or maybe, you know, you live far away from, from your other family or whatever. And back in the day before email, man, you, you just couldn't wait to get that letter. And, oh, the mail was delayed or, you know, it got lost in the mail and, and you were just torn up about, you know, waiting for this this letter. Well, you can imagine what Paul would have been experiencing. He just wanted to hear a good report about what was going on in Corinth. And he's there, and and Titus isn't. And Paul is telling us what was going on in his personal life. That basically, things have gone from really bad to absolutely terrible. The, the, The church in Corinth was falling apart. His ministry was seemingly going down the drain. The guy that he wanted to hook up with was nowhere to be found. That there was a door open to him in, in Troas, and he really didn't even care to go through that door, but we find out that he did go through that door, and he did minister there despite the way he felt. He said, I had no rest in my spirit, verse 13, because I didn't find Titus, my brother. And taking leave of them, I departed from Macedonia. But then look at what Paul says in verse 14. Now, thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ, and through us diffuses the fragrance of His knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one we are the aroma of death leading to death, and to the other the aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, as so many, peddling the Word of God but as of sincerity, but as from, God, as from God, excuse me, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. Paul's life was seemingly falling apart. And maybe you can relate to that. Maybe the circumstances of your life just seem to you to be absolutely out of control. And Paul's life was like that. It, it couldn't get much worse for him, at least from a human perspective. But as we see here in verse 14, Paul had a revelation. And he wants to tell us about his experience 
that he had. Because Paul's writing there and he's, you know, sort of writing about all the bad things that happened and, oh man, this is horrible and you guys are trashing me and I can't believe this and I spent 18 months with you guys and what is going on and blah, blah, blah and my suffering, you know, all the suffering, all the anguish that Paul was going through and we read about it in the first chapter, certainly. But now Paul says, it's almost like a light goes on in verse 14. Now, thanks be to God. Paul begins to worship. In spite of what was going on, Paul says, now, thanks be to God who always, not some of the time, not, you know, half of the time, no, who always leads us in triumph in Christ. Paul realized that despite the way things looked from a human perspective, he was actually being led in triumph in Christ. Now, we have to understand something in order to understand really what Paul's talking about here. We have to understand the Roman triumph. If you're familiar with history, maybe you've learned about it. But the Roman triumph is what Paul is picturing here. It's what he's comparing his triumph in Christ to. And the Roman triumph was a procession of the victorious Roman general as he would march through the streets of Rome to the capital. And it was this huge parade after a victorious campaign. And and there were certain stipulations. In order to be given this celebration, a Roman general would have to have killed at least 5,000 men in that battle. He would also have had to have taken new territory for the Roman Empire. And he would have to have been able to bring back his soldiers, you know, basically in one piece. In other words, he he had to have won the battle. He couldn't come back, you know, all ragtag, you know, two guys left. You know, they had to win it convincingly. And when that took place, they would throw this huge parade for this Roman general. And it would start out with the state officials and the senators from Rome. They would be the first in line. And there would be all the people along the streets cheering and applauding and, you know, throwing confetti or whatever, you know, and start out with these political guys. And then the trumpeters. Then the spoils from the conquered land. So all the gold and the riches and everything that they were able to steal from this conquered land. Then they would have pictures that artists would paint of the conquered land so that everybody could see it. They would have models of the, of the forts and the citadels and the ships that they conquered. They would make these models. This is a big deal. You know, so that all the people could see, ooh, they took that ship over and all oh, that citadel was won. And all these things, they would make these huge models. And then there would be a white bull that would come through town. And, and that was to be sacrificed to the gods. The, the captive princes and leaders and generals from the other army would then be marched through. And they would be in shackles and chains. And they would be put to death right after this. Then the musicians would come through playing their music. The priests with their sweet-smelling incense. And then the general himself. He would be in a chariot pulled by four horses clothed in purple. 
his garments would be embroidered with golden palm leaves. He would be holding an ivory scepter and a Roman slave would be holding the crown of Jupiter above his head. And then beyond him would be his family and then the Roman army uh, would, would sort of bring up uh, the end of the parade. And so this was a huge celebration. In fact, most people uh, would never see a celebration like that. It might only happen once in your lifetime. This wasn't something they did a lot of. This was a huge deal. And it was called the Roman Triumph. And Paul says to us today, he, he writes to the church at Corinth, that despite what's going on in your life, Jesus is that conquering Roman general. He's the triumphant general who's just won a huge battle. And we too, we too as His sons, as His daughters, as His kids, we too are part of that triumphant celebration. No matter what's going on in your life presently, no matter how difficult things have gotten for you, you need to see yourself as part of that triumphant celebration. Because that's who Jesus is. He won the battle. It's been taken care of. He's a conquering king. And despite what you're going through, that's the perspective that we need to have. That's how we need to see things. Not as, oh man, things have just gotten absolutely out of control. My life stinks. Everything's falling apart. No, God wants to see, to show us, to reveal to us that we're triumphant in Him. And that's why Paul can say, now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. See, you guys, we need a different perspective. Paul needed a different perspective on things. His perspective was all about what he could see from his human, human vantage point. And basically what happened here in verse 14 is he was taken out of that and he was placed on higher ground where he could see what was really going on. It's similar to a story in 2 Kings chapter 6. As the Syrian army is coming in to, to take over Israel. And Elijah the prophet is there in his house and his servant Gehazi is with him. And really they had come to Israel to take Elisha. You know, the, the whole country as well, but they were really mad at Elisha because some of the prophecies that he had given against Syria. And so they came there and they were surrounding Elisha's house. And Gehazi was, was absolutely terrified. And he's like, oh, it's over, it's finished, we're done. You know, might as well kill ourselves right here. And, and, and Elisha prayed and said, Lord, open his eyes that he might see what is really going on. And it was right then that, Elijah, that Gehazi's eyes were open to see that for every Syrian soldier, there were hundreds, if not thousands, of angels surrounding them. And Gehazi was able to be taken out of his own human vantage point and put in a place where he could see what was really going on. That he could see God had it under control. God 
was going to win. And you guys, that's, that's the perspective that we need to have in our life. What we see is, is not the end of the story. There's a reason. There's a purpose behind what's going on. And God wants to lead you in triumph. He wants you to see yourself as that conquering Roman general. Part of that celebration. No matter what's going on in your life. You know, we talk about, we talk about worship. And people ask, you know, well, why do you raise your hands? Why do people raise their hands in worship? It's a question that, I, that I've been asked. Well, why, why raise your hands? What's the, what's the point of that? I don't understand why we do that or why people do that. It seems a little weird to me. And, you know, of course the Bible is, is filled with, you know, um, psalms and, and other passages that talk about lifting up your hands to the Lord, lifting up holy hands. But I think there there's a, an illustration for us that gives us sort of an idea of why we do that, and it does apply to what I'm talking about, if you'll bear with me. And that is, is if you think about a child, you think about a child and how they raise their hands to their parents, right? My little ones do it all the time. And they raise their hands to their parents for a couple different reasons. First of all, maybe they're afraid. You know, maybe there's a big dog running around the house and they don't want to get mauled or ran over by the dog. And so, you know, ah, you know, raise their hands to mom and dad and pick me up. I don't want to get attacked by this, this stupid dog. And, or maybe they're afraid of the vacuum or maybe they're afraid of, you know, some, somebody else or whatever. And they, they want you to pick them up and to hold them. And so in, in worship as, as we raise our hands to the Lord, we're, we're basically saying to God, Lord, I'm afraid. Lord, there's a lot of stuff going on in my life that I have absolutely no control over. I need you to pick me up. I need you to hold me. I need you to take me out of this. But a second reason I think that kids raise their hands to their parents and ask to be picked up is think about when you're, you're at a, maybe an ice cream store. You know, Baskin and Robbins, and there's all these different flavors and, you know, all these different ice creams, and the kids want to see into the display cabinet, right? But they can't. All they can see is, you know, the the metal box. And they want to be able to see through the glass down into the ice cream. They want to see what's going on behind the counter. And so they, they ask to be picked up. So that they can have a different perspective. Their perspective right now is is the white cabinet. But they, they, they want you to pick them up and show them what is really going on. Show them the good stuff. And that's what we ask the Lord. We say, God, pick me up. Take me out of this. Take me out of this situation. All that I can see is all the junk that's going on in my life. That's my perspective. I just see the trials, I see the heartache, I see the hardships, I see the difficulties. Just like Paul was saying. All the suffering, all the difficulty, he was burdened beyond strength. He was despairing even of life, he said there in chapter 1. But now all of a sudden, Paul gets a different perspective. The Lord lifted him up. And now he sees himself as triumphant in Christ. 
And you guys, maybe you've been seeing this. You've been seeing all the difficulties of life, and you've been dwelling on that. And God says to you this morning, I want to pick you up. I want to show you what's really going on. I want to give you a different perspective. I want you to see yourself as triumphant through me. And if we will do that, you guys, if we will begin to have that new perspective on things, it will allow us to be powerfully used by the Lord. As what Paul says here, that through us He diffuses the fragrance of His knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one we are the aroma of death leading to death and to the other the aroma of life leading to life. In other words, Paul is saying, that in that Roman triumphant celebration, there would be all the smells of what was going on. There would be the smells of the incense that would be pouring out from the priest's censers. And to some, to some of those people, those would be smells of death to the slaves that were being held captive. But to others, it would be the smells of victory, of life, of celebration. And really what Paul is saying is that in our difficulties, in our trials, just like with a flower, that when a flower is crushed, that when a flower is broken up, that's really when its fragrance, when its aroma is given off, right? Think about lavender. We have this lavender that hangs in our bathroom and it drives me nuts because every time you touch it, all those spores just, you know, go everywhere. You know, I just want to throw it away. But the one thing that it does is when you do touch it, you don't have to really do much to it. You just bump it a little bit. It gives off this amazing aroma. And and that's true in our own life is that when we are crushed through difficulties, when our lives are being tossed around and bumped through trials and tribulations, there is a fragrance that is given off in our life. Now, we can kind of choose what fragrance that's going to be. If we get bitter, if we get angry, if we get depressed, then the aroma that's going to be given off in our life is, man, I sure don't want to have Jesus because this is what what He does for you. You know, what, what would I want to have with Jesus if this is how His people act? You know, just all discouraged, woe is me, life sucks. You know, what do I want with that? What do I want with Jesus if that's what He does for me? But the other fragrance that we can give off because there's a lot of fragrances in life, right? We can give off, you know, a skunk-like fragrance to people. Or we can give off a pleasing fragrance like lavender, like crushed flowers. Fragrances that attract people to Christ. And they see, man, you know, he's really going through it. 
His life is being crushed. His life is being destroyed. But man, what I see in him is that he's, he's triumphant. He's victorious. He's not dwelling on that stuff. There's victory there. And, and that makes people want Jesus. Those aromas, those fragrances attract people to Christ. And they say, man, that's what I want. Because the fact of the matter is, you guys, is that people are watching us whether we want them to or not. We're giving off an aroma. And like Paul says, who's sufficient for these things? Certainly not us. We're not sufficient. We will blow it. We will be repulsive to people in our own strength. But man, through Christ, we can be an aroma of life. And the thing is, is that people are watching us. And the other thing is, is that people are going to be either attracted to or repulsed by us. They're either going to be attracted to Christ or driven away from Christ by our life. Just like different aromas either attract you or they make you want to run. I mean, you smell a skunk and it could be two, three hundred yards away and it's just like, you know, knocks you over. You don't want to get any closer to it than you have to be. You guys, what aroma are we giving off? We're certainly not sufficient for these things. But through Christ, we can be drawing people to Him by our lives. We can be giving off an aroma that is pleasing. And the thing about that is, you guys, is that it's in our trials and it's in our difficulties when we really give off the most powerful fragrances. You know, it's the dead skunk on the side of the road that, you know, is really giving off the, the powerful stuff, right? Or, or it's when they're in trouble. The other day I was golfing over at Meadow Lakes with, with Kevin Vaughn, and I hit a ball down by the one of the ponds, and I went to get the ball, and all of a sudden I saw this, this thing move, and I thought it was like a floating duck feather because there's all those ducks, and, and I thought it was just a feather floating. And then all of a sudden I realized it was a tail. And then I look closer, and it's, a, and it's a skunk, and it's like two feet from me. And I'm like, okay, don't move too quickly. And so I just, I began to back up, and I thought, well, I want my ball. You know, it's just, it's just right there. And so I thought, you know, the skunk will just run off. He's, so I kind of hit the bushes a little bit. You know, he couldn't see me, and, he, and, and he's just standing there. So then Kevin said, well, throw your club at it. So I threw my club at it. Well, now the club is laying right next to it, and it still didn't move. So I'm like, oh, great. Now I lost my ball and my club. And it was a it was a pitching wedge. It's the only pitching wedge I have. So, so I grabbed a stick, and I was kind of shoving it, and then all of a sudden the smell came. And it was like, oh, my goodness. And finally we got the, the skunk to to run off, but my club was just doused in this stuff. 
And so, and I had to use the club the rest of the day. My hands just reeked the whole, you could smell it all over the whole course. So I got home. The first thing Andrew said was, did you get sprayed by a skunk? You just can smell that smell, right? And it's, it's, in, it's in their trouble. It's in their times of difficulties where they let that off. But there's also flowers, like lavender, like roses, that when they're crushed, when they're destroyed, they give off an amazing fragrance. What fragrance are you giving off in your times of difficulty? Is it like a skunk that drives people away from Christ? Or is it like a rose that drives people to Christ? We're not sufficient for these things. Absolutely not. But we can, through Christ, be lifted up out of that difficult circumstance and be given a new perspective, which allows us to then diffuse the fragrance of Christ to those around us. For we are not as so many peddling the Word of God, but as of sincerity, but as from God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. What Paul's talking about there is that we are the, the Lord's witnesses. We are on this earth to be sharing the Word of God. We're not peddling it. it it's not for sale. And that word peddle it means to water something down so that you can make more money. That's, that's what the, the word um, really holds the idea of. It, it was these men, uh, these merchants that would sell wine on the streets and they would dilute the wine with water so that they could make more money. Paul says we don't need to dilute the Word of God. We don't need to water it down. We don't need to sell it. We're not peddlers. But we speak from sincerity in the sight of God in Christ. Guys, our lives speak volumes about the truth of the gospel. Our lives are a testimony. And for many people, you're the only Bible that they'll ever read. You're the only gospel that they'll ever hear. They see it in you. And you guys, in your times of difficulty... That is when you will be powerfully used by the Lord if you allow Him to. If you allow Him, like Paul, to give you revelation. Revelation beyond your circumstances. Revelation to pull you up out of the pit and to say, wow, look at all this ice cream. You know, look at all this stuff that's going on here. And God is in control. God does have my life in His hands. He, he hasn't given up on me. And then people see you and they see how you're handling those situations and they say, man, I want that for myself. I want Jesus in my life. Let's stand and pray together.